This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. The majority of people, over 50% of people say they don't have anybody in their life that is truly a great listener. So it's honestly, it is a gift to be able to give somebody the space to talk and feel like they're truly being, truly being listened to. Joining me today on Bridging the Gap from Nashville, Tennessee, country capital of the world, Brendan Fraser. Brendan is the founder of Wired Planning, a speaker, podcast host, and a former baseball player. We opened the conversation with Brendan's journey and how he made the career leap to go not only from baseball to financial advice, but to go from the dark side, the wholesale industry, I'm just kidding, to now focusing on behavioral coaching, behavioral psychology, and research on helping clients and their actions. Brendan and I also talk about understanding your clients' why, the significance of identifying your client's financial journey, and the importance of drawing the line between knowing what your client needs to hear and see value in versus what they don't. That's something so important that we tend to overlook in our conversations with clients. This was just a fun conversation. Brendan's just a great dude, and he's fun to talk to. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to find value in it. So thank you for joining me, Brendan. Let's get into it with Brendan Frazier. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Brendan Frazier, Nashville, Tennessee, just north of us here in Atlanta. How you doing, my friend? Welcome to Bridging the Gap. Doing well, doing real well. Thanks for having me on here. I've been looking forward to this ever since we got it set up and excited to talk. Feels like we're going to have to be careful between the two of us. If we're not careful, if we don't have a timer set, we may end up going, we may record one of the longest podcasts in uh, Apple history, Spotify history, podcast history. It'd be okay. It'd be a great podcast for someone to listen to driving from like Atlanta to LA, right? (laughs) We'd be able to take them, take them from all the way, you know, all the way across country. But yeah, man, this is going to be good. I mean, we've got some great topics that I think both of you and I can go into for a long period of time, which I'm stoked about. I've been following everything you've been doing on social and just in the in the world of financial advice and wealth management and behavioral psychology for a long time and just super impressed by what you're doing and grateful to have you on here. So it's going to be fun. And you know, I, I always like to ask this question at the beginning of my podcast is Brendan Fraser at 13 years old. Was Brendan Fraser at 13 years old thinking about starting Wired Planning and being a speaker and a coach and hosting a podcast? I mean, was that what you were thinking at 13 year old? Or what was 13 year old Brendan Fraser wanting to be? And then I want to know about your journey to getting to where you are today. Yeah, it's kind of a scary thought to think about getting inside the head of a 13-year-old Brendan Fraser. I'm not sure we want to dive all the way into that. That'd be a little bit humbling. But no, if you went and, and talked to 13-year-old Brendan Fraser, he was he was going to be playing in the major leagues, Major League Baseball one day. That was my destiny, right? There's no other choice, no other option. So everything that I did was geared around baseball and trying to be the best and what were the best doing and trying to emulate that and that didn't come to pass. So I somebody I, I needed somebody to tell me earlier, sooner than later, that uh, you know when you're not big, tall, fast, strong, you don't have elite hand-eye coordination. It's probably not going to happen. But that's okay. The dream stayed alive until it died, and then I moved on. They, what position? What position did you play growing up? Yeah, well, if I was standing up, it'd be pretty obvious. But my size pretty much limited me to middle infield. There so. you go. All right, you got you got hands. You got ability to turn two. That's all right. That's every, you know. That's a lot of our dreams. I you know I I had the same dream, but I I realized that I had to actually be playing on the field as opposed to on the bench to make progress into the game. So uh, I I can relate with you there. Yeah, but, no, <laughs> but so it is. I like the question though because I like I always ask something similar. I like to ask a similar question, right? Because not many people in this industry in general, whether you're a financial advisor, financial planner, or somebody that works with advisors and planners, or any, if you talk to anybody in this industry, very, very few people grow up with this vision or this dream where they don't go to bed at night having these dreams of waking up one day and becoming a financial advisor and a financial planner. Right? And some people do, and that's great, right? And hopefully we can change that in the future, but it just doesn't happen very often. So yeah, my journey basically was I got into, I had a family friend growing up who worked at Merrill Lynch. So I would drive by the office in Little Rock, Arkansas and look and see the building. He just thought that was really cool that he was an advisor at Merrill Lynch, but at the time, probably more of a stockbroker and thought, you know, I think that'd be interesting one day. And then college comes around, I'm still playing baseball. I haven't been humbled quite yet that my future is not going to be in professional baseball, though it was coming on quickly. and didn't really know what I was going to do, right? So I think a story that's similar to a lot of people, didn't know what I was going to do, ended up getting a job 
uh, out of school with what in this industry is what's known as a, a wholesaler or a product partner, right? So it was one of the, it's called Jackson National. So it's a big firm here in Nashville. So got broke into the industry in that role, getting to work with and consult with advisors uh, really around the country on and talk about retirement income all day, every day. And so I did that for, that was my foray into this industry to, to where I realized how much I enjoyed it and liked it and the difference that you can make in people's lives and the impact that you can have on people's lives. And so, no, it wasn't something where I would go to bed at night dreaming of this day. It was more so uh, my journey into the industry anyway, it was more so, I guess you call it one of serendipity maybe, or, or I sort of stumbled into it and then learned once I got in how much I liked it and how passionate I am about it. Well, and I think that you're right, right? Nobody really just grows up being like, gosh, financial advisors, just the, the dream job. But I think that it's now becoming more, more of a known job. And it's not necessarily associated with mahogany desks and striped suits and ties as much as it used to be. But so you, you went to Jackson, you broke in there in Nashville, but now you run your own, you know, you run your own firm and you also are focused on this whole new focus of behavioral psychology and the behaviors of individuals. How did you go from Jackson and on the wholesale side to the independent side and, and now focusing on behavioral coaching and behavioral psychology and all that research and helping people change the way that they act? Yeah, good question. So ultimately, like the the role, like I was, I worked in another role consulting with advisors. And so the cool thing about it, the role of wholesaling and working with advisors is you get to talk to thousands of advisors around the country that are all doing things a little bit differently, doing different things, different ways. You get to see the best of the best. You also see the worst of the worst, which you think the worst of the worst doesn't exist. I promise you it does. I've seen it. I've been around it and experienced it. But you get to pick up on a lot of things, right? That you think that's how I would want to do things one day. Or you realize like, hey, that's what I don't want to do. So 2018, my wife got pregnant and I was sitting in a hotel room in Kentucky thinking to myself, you know what? I don't want to be in a hotel room in Kentucky when my wife calls me after my son's baseball game to tell me about all the great plays that he made or how he, I didn't want him to call and say, dad, guess what happened today in my baseball game? That To me, that just sounded like a, a nightmare. And, and that may be a little bit hyperbolic and extreme, right? But in a way, it really did feel like kind of suffocating that I would be stuck there and not being able to participate and be involved. So I did what anybody would do when they're at a, or they're making pretty good money in a job and your wife's pregnant with their first kid. And I decided to to just quit. And, and so props to my wife, right? Like it, it, she takes quite a bit of um, something, whatever you want to call it for me to go and say, Hey, Hey babe, I know this is, this has been good. I enjoy this job, make decent money. We're about to have a baby, but how about this pay cut? You know, we're making this, we're going to pretty much go to zero. You feel good about that? Sound good. All right, great. Let's make it happen. <laughs> it's not the, but then again, I have this idea that the, I have this idea around the right time fallacy that, that there's no such thing as the right time. So there's always going to be a reason not to do it right now. Maybe there's a more optimal time, but uh, so that's why I decided, all right, I don't want to be gone. I need to start doing my own thing. And that's when I moved into the financial planning side of things. But at the same time, there had been this prevailing thought or this prevailing thing that, I, that had been sticking with me the whole time that I had been uh, working with advisors in the wholesaling role. And it was how often I would hear people say something along the lines of, you know, Brendan, sometimes I feel like more of a therapist than a financial advisor. Or the other version of it would be, you know, Brendan, there's times where I wish that I think I'd be better off with a degree in psychology than a degree in, in economics or finance or whatever it might be. Right? And the thing is, I know everybody listening to this, I know you're thinking that everybody that's an advisor that works with people and their money, they're listening going, yeah, I've had a similar thought at some point in time. Everybody's had that thought in that moment where you realize that, wait a minute, there's more to this thing than just the numbers. So my next question naturally in, that mo in those moments when I would hear that would be, okay, I hear that a lot. I hear it all the time. What do you do in that to get better at that? How do you practice or develop or hone those skills that, that you would say are more like psychology or therapy type skills? Right? And then there was just always a blank stare, you know, blank, blank stare, confused look. It's kind of like, ah, I don't know. I kind of wing it, read a book, maybe went like learned a thing or two here and there. And so to me, that was just it's one of those deals where you look at it and you go, okay, everybody says that this is a thing. They all admit that it's kind of necessary, but there weren't any, the, the trainings, the courses, the designations that we're going through to train us for the role don't tell you how to work with emotional human beings on the emotionally charged topic like money, 
right? And so that's where I sort of just said, all right, I think I have an interest in this. I'm passionate about it. I think that there are other people out there that are interested in solving this or, or at least focusing on it, developing these skills and, and, and bridging the gap between the knowledge of what to do, but then how to actually do it and practice with clients day in and day out. And so I sort of em embarked on this journey in this quest to do research, to talk to awesome, smart people that have the answers and then go and then have advisors come along the journey with me and say, Hey, let's try to figure all this stuff out together. That'll make us not, you, we got to be great at the technical side. The technical knowledge is important. You got to be shrewd. You got to be great with the numbers, but there's this whole other element that if you can get it right, and no, and nobody denies this either. If you can get it right, it has the ability to change your clients' lives and your practice in a way that very few other things can. We just need somebody to help show us the, the way or, or make it a, a relatable or approachable or applicable to know how to apply some of these things that are typically found under the fields of behavior change, psychology, therapy, right, communication. The answers are all out there. We just need to bring it directly into what we do day in and day out in the work that we do with clients. You know, I think that that kind of transitions this conversation to something that's so interesting to me about the whole behavioral aspect of our job, right? When I was working with clients, I'd always tell them, to your point, 90% of my job was psychology, 10% was investing. Like the easy part is investing. The hard part is keeping you from doing something stupid and doing something that you'll regret and convincing you that what I'm saying is not for the benefit of me, but is actually for the benefit of you because I've seen it, but you have yet to see it and me helping mm -hmm. you get there. That is the that is a challenge. And so you, you said something about, you know, we know what to do, but now we have to figure out how to get them to actually do it, whether it's an advisor, it's a client or whatever it may be. What have you seen has been one of those keys of making that leap? Because there's so much, I was talking to Daniel Crosby recently, there's so much that we know we shouldn't do or that we should do, but we just don't do it, right? We know we shouldn't oh, yeah. eat sugar a lot because it's not good for you. Like the research tells you it's very easy, but yet we do it. Uh -huh. We know we should be saving in our 401k starting at the age of 21, but we just don't do it. So how do you bridge that gap? Plug in the podcast. How do you bridge that gap? Yeah. Very nice. Well done there. Yeah. So, uh, and I'll throw another one in there that I think like really helped this concept, this idea hit home for me around this idea, this gap between knowing and doing because you think like listen if, if i can if you said these are my financial goals and i was to provide you step by step item by item exactly what you needed to do in order to accomplish the goals that you want to accomplish like why wouldn't you do it like, i can't think of one reason why you wouldn't do that well so there's a quote that i heard and then a study that i heard that came together in my life at the same time that sort of changed transformed how i thought about all of this and it was it and also happened to be right around the time that i launched the, the business and the podcast around helping advisors get better with this, the, the human side, the behavioral side. So the quote that I like is, like's not a good way, but the quote that I love and I use all the time is, if all we needed was information, we'd be billionaires with six packs. So if all we needed was information, we'd all be billionaires, we'd all have six packs because we know how to make money. All the information on how to make money and run a great business, it's out there. All the information on how to get in great shape, how to eat healthy, it's all out there, right? And so maybe you're think, thinking, okay, well, I don't want to be a billionaire or I don't want to have a six pack. That's, that's fine. Think about any area of your life that's not where you want it to be. The information, the knowledge on how to get there, it's, it exists, right? It's not an information problem. We have an execution problem, right? So say it's your, you look at it, you're like, you know, my marriage isn't exactly where I want it to be. Well, guess what? It's not struggling because you don't know how you don't have access to information on how to improve your marriage. That's not the problem, right? So there's a study that was done, and I still remember where I was when I read it. And, and I was actually in Florida on vacation. And yes, I do love this stuff so much that I read about it on vacation, which is a little weird, about heart bypass patients. Have you heard this one? I haven't. Let's go. I want okay, to hear it. So I'm no medical expert, so I'm not going to get too deep into it. But And there's probably people on here that know more about heart bypass surgeries than I do. But in a heart bypass surgery, they go in and they open up a valve of your heart because it's literally blocked and the blood can't flow through, right? So they go and they put in a stent to open it up so blood can flow. But what they also tell these patients is, hey, we, had, we, we just performed this expensive invasive surgery so that you could live, so that blood could flow through your heart. Now, here's the problem. It's not a cure. So if you don't change your lifestyle, if you don't change the way that you eat, 
that what you eat and the way that you eat, if you don't change your exercise regimen, if you don't uh, work out a little bit more, if you don't smoke less, right? All these behavioral elements, lifestyle elements, if you don't change these things that contributed to it, you're either going to be right back here having another expensive and invasive life-threatening surgery, or you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to die. So you would think with all the, with everything stacked in favor of information, right? Hey, if you don't want to have another surgery, if you don't want to die, you have to do these things. You have to change your lifestyle, change your habits. You would think that if there was ever a time that was going to work, it would be it, right? Well, two years later, they follow up with these subjects. 90% of these patients hadn't changed their lifestyle. 90% of patients didn't change knowing that they had the possibility of dying if they, if they couldn't do it. And so to me, that was the moment where I sort of went, wait a minute. If people aren't changing with, in a matter of life and death, why would in the world would we expect them to change when it comes to their money and their finances? So I wanted to point that out. I think it's like those, that quote and that study were uh, transformative for me in my way of thinking. So I mentioned it for that reason. But when it comes to advisors and working with their clients, uh, Tim Maurer has this great stat that he was not responsible for, but he's been putting it out. I told him on, on my show, I was like, I can't believe that this doesn't get more notoriety in the world of financial advice. But when you hear it, you'll understand why we probably don't want it to. But 70% of clients implement less than 20% of the recommendations that we make. So if you were to give five recommendations of, of, on, in a financial plan, 70% of the clients that you meet with will only implement one, will implement no more than one of those things. I mean, what a gut-wrenching, mind-numbing, humbling stat that, by the way, most people are going to hear that and go, that must be the other people, right? That's not me. Well, let's, uh, let's be realistic for a second. The numbers are numbers for a reason, right? And maybe you are great at it. So the question just becomes like, why is that the case, and it's for a number of reasons, but it ultimately comes down to the fact that information is insufficient. Having the information alone and knowing what you're supposed to do doesn't actually change behavior, at least not consistently. Well, so so I I can actually see that, right? I think that everybody's like, well, no, it's not me. I, I, I'm great. My clients listen to what I'm saying. And we're in an industry where we always think that we want to solve problems. And the way that yeah. we solve problems for our clients is by sharing information, data, data, data. That's what we do. We analyze companies, we analyze situations, and we provide a solution with data. This is what the data says. And so we provide a ton of information. So if information doesn't solve it, which I think is mind-blowing, and I bet you the people that are saying, no, my clients do it, if they were to go and look and ask their clients, how much of the action items from a meeting did you actually do? You're going to come back yeah. to that same number, right? Yeah. And yeah. so if it's not information, then how are advisors then? Advisors, I can just see like raising their hands like, well, I'm SOL. I mean, what do I do now? Like, I don't know what else to do. Like, yeah. How do we then get these people to act then? How do we get our clients to act? Yeah. And so there's a book out there if you want to start there called Advice That Sticks by Moira Summers, which is awesome. And I think this is actually the question that you asked initially. And I don't know why I, I didn't come back to it. So I'm glad you brought it back up. But yeah, and if you think about it, right, like we're in the business. Uh, we are financial advisors, financial planners. We see ourselves as the people that are able to give advice, right? We give the advice. We have the solutions to the problems. Well, so I, I usually say you can sum it up in four ways. And I, I won't go too deep in any of the four. I mean, we could do an entire presentation on all four. But number one is cultivating conviction. In other words, your ideas will never be as great as the client's ideas. And in fact, there's a book behind me right now, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, where he says that the least effective way to change somebody's behavior is by telling them what they need to do. It takes 19 times longer to tell them what they need to do than it does if they convince themselves, if they decide on their own that that's the right thing to do. So your ideas will never be as great as your client's ideas. So even if you know the answer and you know what they need to do, it'll never be as powerful coming from you as it will be if it comes from them, if they think it's their idea and they've decided on what they want to do next, right? The human brain's wired for control. Your ideas, your idea is never as great as their idea. So that's what I, when I say cultivate conviction, I mean, cultivate conviction by getting the client convicted that they've decided that that's what they need to do to get where they want to go. 
you touch on a point that I don't want to let go here is that this idea of ownership. If you've if you've ever worked with a team, the person that comes up with the idea tends to run with it a lot faster than everybody else because they want they feel ownership in it and nobody likes failing, right? Mm-hmm. And when they fail on something that they brought up, they have tons more conviction towards it, right? And it's the same thing with your clients. If they fail on something you told them, then they'll just fire you and go to another advisor and be like, that person's wrong. Like they didn't, they don't get me. I'm gonna go find someone else that does it. But if you help them come to it their way and you ask questions and you build that ownership to them, then they're gonna feel it on themselves that have to go and do it. I love that idea. And you can take that from like leadership and everything that we do with running teams and you're hundred percent spot on. Now the question gets yeah. to how do we let's dig in let's peel this onion back like how do we cultivate conviction with our clients without telling them and helping them lead them to that that way yeah so i mean it's pretty funny the, the way to do it's probably really simple and that is to if, if you've done a really good job of understanding what it is that's important to them why it's important to them to accomplish it, where they're at financially. You've done a good job building trust and connection so that they know that you're the person to, to deliver the outcome that they want, right? Then it should be pretty simple if you've laid everything out to basically ask them, what do you think is the next best thing to do? Or in, now there's times where there's there's an obvious number one thing that needs to be done, right? Like, so if you have no will, no estate plan whatsoever, if there's, if something's a wreck and you need to get back in order, there are times where you need to prioritize based on like, this has to be done first. And that's where it's your job as a, the professional to say, hey, this is something that we have to do first if they don't identify it themselves, right? But, but just by simply asking the question of, hey, based on everything we've talked about today, everything we've gone over, you, this is what's important to you. You can even have a list of, hey, here are the things that we see, the things that we recommend that you do. What would you say is the number one, or what would you say is most important to get done in your mind? What do you want to accomplish first? Right? And it sounds so simple, right? But you're just asking them to identify in order to get where they told you that they want to go, in order to be able to take more time to take their family to Disney World a couple times a year. What are the things that they need to do in order to do that? So it's just as simple as asking, hey, what is it that's, what do you want to do? What sticks out to you? What do you want to try and address first? Now, if they say something that you know, based on your planning knowledge, right, that it, it shouldn't come first or something, there's a glaring red flag that needs to come first, that's a different conversation. And you can have that conversation. But just asking the question around what is it that, that you want to do and getting agreement that that's the next best action to take. So, and then, but the second way that you tie in conviction, and this is one of those small, subtle changes you can make that makes a huge difference, makes the world a difference, is when you're making recommendations, if you have a document or a piece of paper that's your implementation document or your recommendations with bullet points or your, your analysis of what needs to be done, is tying it to their why, tying it to their purpose. So you're not saving an extra $575 a month for retirement. You're saving an extra $575 a month to spend more time with your family in Disney World because that's what you've said is important to you. Retirement wasn't important, but the ability to dial back and take your your family to Disney World two times a year and stay in these hotels and go to the parks and, and everything like that everything that they tell you about that, that's the why. Spending time with family is why they're saving it, not retirement. So when you're, you're in a situation where you're thinking, hey, I want to buy a new car and you go and you have the new car smell, you're not going, hey, do I want to buy this new car or do I want to retire? You're going, do I want to buy this new car or do I want to spend money so, or I want to save that money so I can go take my family to Disney World? twice a year. And I think you can hear the difference in that, right? And it's the, so the more conviction you can cultivate by identifying what's truly important and giving somebody a bigger why, the more conviction they have in implementing the actual advice. Well, I think that you you touched on something that I want to dig into of, of understanding you know your own personal why, but now we're talking about understanding your client's why and helping them understand that, which is difficult to do if you don't understand your why, which I want to come back to. But before I do, I want to go, I want to go to a question though, on you know, we're we're talking about giving our clients the ownership so that they can start acting on their decisions. We're changing the narrative of the conversation of an advisor from 
being the investment advisor, which is all about asset allocation, tax loss harvesting, returns, which is easy to point value to. But we all know study after study has shown that that's not what drives value in the relationship. It's behavioral coaching and everything. So, but now it's, it's becoming harder to show value. And that's why I think advisors are staying away from it. So how do you show your clients the value you're providing, especially when you're helping them come up with the answers, right? They're like, well, I said that. Like, this is what I knew to do. How do you help? Because these are clients that may not know or have therapists and understand the value of a therapy and everything of that nature. So how do you help them see that, which is a less quantitative return that you're providing to them? Yeah. So meaning how do you how do you help them? How do you help? How does the advisor help them see the value of this behavioral coaching of that they're providing that is different than what their portfolio is doing, which is easy to point to my value. Look, this return this, but with behavioral coaching, it's harder from that standpoint. Yeah. So I think there's two ways to look at this. One is should we be promoting this as the value, right? Should we be saying mm. that it's that this is a value that we provide if you work with us? And then the second piece of it is if you do feel that way, if you do want to be that convey that, then what are the best ways to do it? So I, I'm going to start first with the question of should we? And I've done a lot of thinking, discussing, researching on this about a year or so ago because I was pretty fascinated by it. Uh, and if you look at Morningstar, Morningstar and Financial Planning Association did this joint study where they asked clients what it is that they value most when working with a financial advisor. And I, from the client's perspective, items number 13 and 15 were the two that were related to behavioral coaching and the soft skills, right? Number 15 was helps me control my emotions. And number 13 was something about being a coach, essentially, right? And so but the, what the people at Morningstar told me was that number 15 helps, helps me control my emotions, the behavioral piece. It wasn't just like one, two, three, four, five, 15. It was like at the very, very bottom. You could, it could barely see number 14 above it. It was ranked so low, right? And so my, the question we have to ask ourselves first is, do we even communicate this value if it's not something that clients actually see value in? I like to think of it in the if we draw a parallel to the world of health, right? Like nobody says, hey, I want a personal trainer because I want somebody that will make sure that I show up every morning, get out of bed and do the extra rep when I don't have any energy left and I'm not having a good day. Like, like nobody actually says, I want a personal trainer for those reasons. What they say is, I want a personal trainer to make sure that I can like do the workout, put a workout together for me, make sure I eat well, maybe hold me accountable so that I can get in shape. But those aren't the real reasons you want a personal trainer. It's just you don't, we don't think of it that way. So I, what I worry about is if you try to convey, if you try to hammer home your value as being this behavioral element, this behavioral piece, and people don't think of it that way, they don't know that they want it or need it, then is it really effective? Right? I think that's the first question that we have to ask is, is there value in even conveying it? And ultimately, what I've come to think on, and, I, and you may have some thoughts on this too, but value, the, the epitome of value, the crux of value, the delivery of value is truly delivering the outcome and the result that somebody wants. So people don't buy the plane ticket, they buy the destination. Right? So behavioral coaching is part of the package that comes with the plane ticket. But if you everything you do is around getting somebody to the outcome of the destination that they want, they don't really care what you do along the way. So there's an, uh, there's an analogy that I love. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. It actually comes from our mutual friend here, Dr. Daniel Crosby, who, who he says, well, the, the way that I explain it is you have to give people what they want, give clients what they want and slip in what we know that they need. Right. And so his example for that is like trying to get your kids to eat vegetables, right? You do anything and everything you can. You put vegetables in pizza or Dr. Joy Leary of Shaping Wealth. She says it's like adding spinach to a smoothie where you add it in there, you put it in there. Have you ever put spinach in a smoothie before? I have. It's delicious. But you can't taste it, right? You get all the benefits of it and you can't taste it. And so I think that's how we have to think about this idea of behavioral coaching. It's not something that we flaunt. It's not something that we tout necessarily, but it's something that you slip in that you provide because you know how valuable it is. And what it is, is it's a tool to deliver the outcome to solve the problem that your clients have. 
I love that way of thinking because I think it's a it's actually a real worry or a challenge that I think is going to face this industry as behavioral coaching and behavioral psychology continues and behavioral finance becomes more and more known as everybody's like, all right, well, then now I need to tout on my website that I'm a behavior coach. And But yeah. it goes to the point of, I love the idea of misalignment of value. It's a misalignment of value. And I, I think back to a lot of my conversations with some of the some marketing minds on this podcast and where everybody's talking about advisors always like to write about things that they want to talk about, but that their clients don't care to hear about, right? <laughs> yeah, all, right, we, right. As advisors, we just tend to have that. And so it's a matter of saying value is a perception, right? What is the perception of value? And what the client wants is they want that freedom. They want happiness. They want experiences. That's what they want. How you get them there, they don't care. They want that outcome. And that's just kind of the, the way we've grown up. And so to your point, behavioral coaching is just kind of part of that journey. And they don't really care about the journey. Yeah. So, I mean, and imagine too, by the way, if you're trying to like promote your value, d d demonstrate, justify your value, you went to somebody and you said, Hey, here, the biggest thing that we do, the number one thing we're going to do for you is we're going to, we're going to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And the things that you don't want to do, we're going to force you to do them, right? Like that's pretty much a recipe for never getting a client on board ever. Right? So, but that is behavioral coaching. So I think it's harmful to try to thrust it in that way or to, to not be calculated or thoughtful about how we go about communicating the value. So I'll give one example of how you can communicate the value. If you want to communicate it, if you truly believe in it, you want to communicate it, we can go and use some examples of how did you do it effectively. And the best way I know to explain it is it's like lane control on your car. So if you have a car that has lane control, you know, you're sitting there, you're driving and you're on the interstate going fast. You're thinking about whether or not to convert the client into a Roth IRA. Your mind starts drifting off and the, the vehicle starts veering over into the other lane, but your car has lane control. So it subtly nudges you back in. Anybody that has it on their car knows exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's one of those things that it, until you need it, it's not valuable. Uh, you don't need somebody to keep you in your lane if you're driving right down the lane that you're supposed to be in. But when it's most valuable is when you need it. The most behavioral coaching is the same way. Nobody really needs it or thinks they need it or really wants it until they do. And it's when they do that they see the value that it's you're ripe for your opportunity to promote it or to, to articulate it. So the example that Evan Beach gave on episode 10 of the podcast that I still reference to this day because I think it's the perfect example is he had a client who she had a, a, the, roughly like the example was the client had a million dollars. The account had dropped 40%. She had $600,000. They did their thing. They worked with her. They kept her invested. The account bounced back up to a million dollars, right? So it fell all the way down. She didn't sell. They kept her invested. It came all the way back up. And then in that moment, when it did that, when it came up, when it bounced all the way back, they just sort of subtly reminded her of, hey, see, this is why when we preach to you staying invested, this is why we do it. This is why you work with us to help you make the decisions that are best to get you to where you want to go. And that was a $400,000 decision that you made, right? And then they, I don't know if he said this or not, but when he said it on the podcast, he said, you know, she'll never be able to make up for that in fees for the rest of her lifetime as a client. <laughs> so it became valuable when, it, when she needed it the most. And that's when that's the best opportunity. If you want to convey it, if you want to articulate it, that's the best time to do it. When, is that a point? Not when they don't know they need it, but at the time when they realize how much they need it. I love that example. I use an example of that for more recent around the pandemic. And I always tell advisors, this is why you should never lower your fees is because if you kept them, if you're there and help them through this journey, you just earn them X number of dollars and they'll never be able to, to, to pay you back and then fees. But you know, I, and it also reminds me of the idea that I always say is that in this industry, it's not a matter of number of years you've been in the industry. It's a matter of economic cycles you've been through in your time of working. And the reason is, is because just like this, you really sharpen your your, your knife and your, your skills in the tough times, but you also win your clients over for a lifetime if you can help them through a tough time because yeah. of that same point. So those that have been in the industry maybe 10 years, but have gone through some of the toughest times, you have clients for a lifetime because you've helped them through and you've now have these skills. And I, I think that that's such an awesome way of thinking in terms of how you have put it as well. And, and so I want to transition to talk about this other topic for a second. And then, you know, I got to be careful because we could be here for, like you said, for a while. 
you talked about helping clients work towards their why and the, the idea of what their values are. And, you know, Simon Sinek has Start With Why as a book, and it's an amazing book. And, you know, I think that every advisor should read it and understand what their true why is, because then it allows you to easier do it for others. But how do we go through this process, asking the questions, listening, helping our clients understand what their why is? Because a lot of their why is like, I just want to retire. But that's not a true, like, deep down driver of why. So for advisors that are out there struggling with this because they're they're kind of surface level, which is why you point back to returns, but in order to do value-based conversations and why conversations, you got to go deeper. How can advisors get deeper to help their clients understand their why, which may not be the reason they came to the advisor in the first place, but it's the way that you need to work for that client. Yeah, this isn't going to be a good answer, just so you know, because there's no easy way. There's no shortcut to actually do it. And I wish that there was, right? I wish that it was like, You don't have a silver bullet, like a genie, like in a bottle that can come out and just do it for us? If I did, if I did, I'd probably be on a beach somewhere. But but I do, I think first and foremost, from from what I've done and the advisors that I've talked to and the ones that I've worked with, it starts with a mindset shift of realizing that when you talk with somebody, you meet with somebody there's usually a reason behind what they're saying and just going into the mindset of it's your job to try to uncover not just what they want to accomplish, but why they want to accomplish it. So this is what I call the golden circle of financial advice. So you go back to Simon Sinek, the people that are familiar with Simon Sinek in that book and his work will know that he, I, I ripped it off almost completely from him. Only his was just the golden circle. This is the golden circle of financial advice where you've got three, three concentric circles. So there's one circle on the outside, a second circle in the middle and a third circle inside of that. This makes for great audio, I know, by the way. But <laughs> on the and in the out the top that the top of the outside circle is is what? The top of the middle circle is how. And then the top or in the very middle circle is why. And so for years and years and years and years, and even to this day, the primary way that financial planning has been done is we go from the outside in. We go, we go from what to how. So what is it that you want to accomplish? Here's how I can help you accomplish it. You want to retire at age 65. What are your financial goals? What are your financial goals? You want to retire at 65? Here's my expertise, my knowledge, my service, my process, and my financial plan to show you how to do that. What is what, how, when you want to retire? How is what I can do to accomplish that for you? But the best advice inverts everything. It goes the other way around. And it says, it starts with why. And why is something important to you instead of what is it that you want to accomplish? What are the, why is it? Why is money important to you? What are your values? What is your purpose? And then from there, you can, you can talk about how what you do can deliver the outcome that they want. So it goes why, how, what? And so, and, and this is where we talked about this pre-show, but when you can uncover, well, actually, let me give an example first. So an example of that would be you hear a lot of people say, hey, um, for me, something I want to do is retire at age 65. We'll use that same example. right? We, and we think that's what they want to accomplish. Well, if you really dive into it, if you spend time talking to somebody and processing through it and listening and asking great questions, what you may find out is they thought they wanted to retire. What they really want and what they really value is doing meaningful work. And in the work that they're doing, they have a boss that they don't like and they don't feel like they're contributing anything to the people around them or to society. They want to do something that's meaningful and, and helps them uh, give back to their, their colleagues, to whatever industry they're in, but they hate their job. They don't really want to retire. So if the focus was just on retiring, you're going in completely the wrong direction. Right? Because they don't actually want to retire, but you can't know that unless you dig deeper into why it is that they say they want to retire. Or it could be the, the, the example that I use a lot is somebody comes and says, hey, the, the what that they want to accomplish is they want to build uh, a deck out back in, in their backyard. And how you do it is you save $525 a month until you can build a deck out back. Right? And that's all. That's fine. You ask somebody what they want to accomplish. Here's how you do it. But why is it that they want to build the deck out back. It's because they they love spending time and connecting in community with their family and their friends and they want to host their grandkids birthday parties, they want to host neighborhood get-togethers because they value time with family and community. That's the real why. It's not about building the deck, right? That's not what it's about. 
It's about the spending time with family and their neighbors and being in community. And here's the, the thing about that, that I try to get across as often as I can is when you tap into somebody's why, when you tap into their values, into their purpose, that's, that ignites behavior change. That's fuel on the fire for behavior change. So when you think about, hey, how can we get somebody to do the things that they well, that we need them to do to follow through on the advice. Again, knowing why you're doing it is the ultimate motivation to do the things that you need to do. So I don't, I don't just want to lose a little bit of weight and get in shape, right? I want to, I want to go work out so that I can be present and physically active and mentally active with my two boys and have the energy to do it when I get home from work every day. So when I go, when I do wake up and my alarm goes off and I don't want to work out, I'm not thinking about losing five pounds. I'm thinking about being mentally and physically present and active with my two boys, where if I don't get a good night's sleep and work out and focus on that, I'm not going to maximize the time that we have with them. And, and it's just another level of motivation. You can hear how one ignites change and the other is kind of just this stale, thing that we, you would think like, oh, it's about losing weight. Well, no, it's not really about that. And that's why you have to get to the why. And so I'm going to finish with what we talked about pre-show, which is uh, we're all familiar with Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King, MLK, right? And there's a reason that he didn't give an I have a plan speech, right? Because he had this task in front of him. He was trying to motivate people. He was trying to, he was trying to facilitate change around the nation, right? He didn't get up there and say, here's my plan to change the way that things are. No. He could have done that, right? That would be the logical thing to do is go and say, hey, here's what we're going to do. What he did was he painted the picture and said, I have a dream of what it could look like. And because what he knows that we need to know is that plans don't inspire action, but dreams do. And so if you want to take a, if you want to remember anything, that might be the thing to remember is to take a page out of Dr. Martin Luther King's playbook of focusing more on why, focusing more on the, the dream and the purpose than the plan itself. Well, I mean, I think that politicians could take something from that too, right? They always give us these plans. Maybe they just give us something to dream about, right? Give us some hope from that <laughs> yeah. standpoint on both sides. Uh, but there's so much to uncover from here. And I'm just going to uncover it kind of on a high level because I want to be respectful of time a- as well. I think that's something that you mentioned about that deck example, right? The example of why do you want to build the deck? I think that we also have to remember, because I think people will listen to that be like, well, all right, you, they told the why, now you still told them the how. The importance of understanding the why isn't for that one goal. It's for now how you motivate them and how you help them plan for future goals. Because now you also know of what they're into, right? Community is what empowers them. So when they come to you about something that's not community-driven or that they want to do, but it's not related to community, you can help them see what their values are. That's how you uncover their values. I think that that's so incredible from that one goal. Uh, I'm really glad you said that because I always tend to gloss over this whenever I'm talking about it. And I always think about it later and go, shoot, I should have hit on that too. But yes, yeah, so you're exactly right. And what it does is it provides a lens on life, essentially, where you now have this lens through which to make decisions and decide how you want to invest your time, your money, your energy, and your resources, right? So that way, when, when you have this opportunity to come up to buy a piece of land, but you've got to take out a loan to do it and you've got to service the loan, you can look at it and go, hey, I like the idea of buying that piece of land, but does that align with my desire to be in community by building this deck out back. And it helps you evaluate trade-offs, which is a big piece of financial planning done right, right? Is, is helping to evaluate trade-offs and figure out where money's supposed to go. So when you know what's truly important to you and you know your why, not only can you live in alignment with that and align your money with that, but you now have a lens through which to evaluate decisions and make decisions that it, it actually, Roy Disney says, when your values are clear, your decisions are easy. And that's what I mean when I say a lens on life is you now know how to make decisions about what's most because you know what's truly most important to you. Yeah. And I think that it, it, you have to dig deep and peel back the onion to understand people's values, even your own. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like it, we can, everybody's like, oh, I value X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay, well, let's dig deep. Like, have you made decisions that hinge on those values? And if you haven't, then they're probably not values to you. And that's okay. It's like, doesn't make you a bad person. Everybody has their own unique values and that's what makes us all unique. Like it's okay, but you have to peel back the onion. And I think that, you know, the other example from start with why, if you're not convinced yet, first off, read the book. It's one of the most inspiring books that I've read in terms of of my side of of how I think is, you know, the the example of Apple and Dell. If you want to go and inspire someone in a company, like just think about those two companies. Apple is all about, they started with the why and worked out. They're like, we are going to change the world. 
That's our. That's what we are doing. And by the way, we sell computers, right? This is what Simon Sinek says. This is, his, you know, go check it out on YouTube. He talks about it all there. Whereas yeah. Dell's talking about the how or what they're doing, right? We sell computers. Come buy from us because we have a better computer. Like, yeah, which yeah. company are you going to want to work with? Which company do you want to associate with? I want to associate with Apple. I want to right. associate with changing the world. And yeah, that's the whole yeah. b- power of the why is it, it gives you an inspiration to MLK that it gives you a dream that you can go towards as opposed to just a product that you can have. So I think that that's so powerful. Yeah. For those of you who are listening, if you want to see, get a really good, clear explanation, visual of what this looks like and sounds like, go watch Simon Sinek's, I think, 17 or 18 minute TED talk where he explains exactly what Matt said. He draws the circle that I was talking about earlier. I think I've watched it five times and my, my the amount of like chills and goosebumps I get when I watch it, I think increases every time. You think you'll go the other way, right? But every time I watch it, I just get fired up and, and ready to go. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's worth going out and, and checking out. It's just Simon Sinek, start with why. TED Talk, and you'll find it. It's incredible. Brendan, you've been so gracious with your time and your your insights, man. I could talk with you for, for hours. We could definitely build a podcast that goes from Atlanta to LA, uh, <laughs> for sure. But uh, I, we're not going to do it today, but I'd love to have you back on. But before I let you go, I want to ask my two, two questions that I ask all my guests. And this one I know we talked about pre-show could be more difficult for you because of our, our indecisiveness, both you and I, of, of figuring out which book we're going to read next. But these conversations are one of the things that are one of my values is, uh, is learning. I'm a lifelong learner. That's something I value. That's why I have these conversations. And I also like to read from people that I look up to and that I can learn from. And, and so I always ask people, what's one book out there either that you're reading now or that you think everybody should read to help them continue to be learning every day? Yeah. So if anybody's listening and you have a good system for picking what book to read next, please reach <laughs> out, email, Twitter, LinkedIn. I need to know. I need help. But I, yeah, I, I struggle with this question because there's so many. But, but I, So I'm just going to list the three that come to mind. And they're actually all behind me probably for that reason. right? But for what we do day in and day out, I think you have to read Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. If you haven't read it, that needs to be up or near the top. Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss is a great book on basically how to listen, ask questions, get to know somebody, develop empathy, and actually change their behavior. So it's a great way to learn the skills that basically, you know, there's a lot of skills out there that advisors need to learn that are found in uh, other fields. Like therapists know how to ask questions to get people to open up. Hostage negotiators know how to get people to open up and trust them and change their behavior. Right? And so he talks about all those techniques in that book. It's it's one of my favorite books. And then there's another book back here called Range, which is a little bit more outside the, the realm of what I do day in and day out. But I, every chapter that I read, I felt like it, it was, I couldn't put it down. I just thought it was so good in a way that it expanded my thinking to where instead of just dialing in and saying, Hey, I want to be really great at one thing. Hey, make the case as to why you're better off not limiting yourself, but going wide instead of deep, not that's going to sound kind of controversial, right? Not that you shouldn't have a niche, not that you shouldn't be great at one thing. Right. But they make the case for how to conduct your life, how to, how to build your life where you go wider than deep. And it it made me see things a little bit differently. And it, it was probably something that I needed at that time. But I thought it was, it was a, a great book and one that I go back and reference often. Yeah. The idea of a book can change your whole life. And uh, it's all a matter of reading the right book at the right time. Not yeah, every, that's right. Sometimes you have to read it multiple times because the first time you read it may not be the right time in your life, but the second time it could drastically change yeah. uh, change your life. And that's the power of, of reading. The last question I ask, and I, I, I stole this from Barron's because I saw them do it at a conference and I loved it. They always ask their guests, and that's why I ask my guests, what's one piece of actionable advice you think that our our listeners could take away from our conversation here today? Yeah, I guess the what I would say where I always try to encourage people to do and whenever we get done with these, you know, with some one-on-one conversations, coaching calls, whatever it might be, is if you want to start down the path of the human side of advice and building more trust and connection and really changing the relationships you have with clients and, and, and in the process, changing your practice and the trajectory of your business is just try to get a little bit better at truly listening to somebody. Well, we know the study, there's a book behind me that has a stat that says that the majority of people, over 50% of people say they don't have anybody in their life that is truly a great listener. So it's I, honestly, it is a gift to be able to give somebody the space to talk and feel like they're truly being 
truly being listened to. And by the way, it just so happens that if you can develop that skill, you, it's better for your clients, it's better for you, and you give better advice, and it's better for your practice. It's just really, really, really hard to do. So even just going in with a little, changing your mindset a little bit and going in with a dis, with this mindset of, I'm going to do a better job of listening. I'm, I'm going to be where my feet are. Right? I'm going to turn off my phone or put it on do not disturb. I'm going to turn all the screens off, remove the clutter around my desk. I'm going to take a 10 minute break before my next meeting to get in the right headspace and truly listen to what this person has to say, because everything that they're telling me, they're telling me for a reason. They're giving me the tip of the iceberg, but there's a reason that they're telling me that. And if I listen well enough, I'm going to uncover what's truly down there, what's underneath that. And so I say that, and that's, I know kind of like, you know, cool, high level, nice. Yeah, that sounds good. The best way I think to start, if you're looking for actionable ways to do that, is to go into your next meeting with an 80-20 mindset or 80-20 listen to talk ratio, right? So focus on, prioritize, say, I'm only going to talk 20% of the time, or I'm going to listen 80% of the time. What'll happen is it's really hard to do. You'll probably end up talking 60%, maybe 70% uh, or listening 60% or 70% of the time, but you're starting to build the muscle with this focus on listening more, right? Or even write it on, on your computer screen right on top of whatever you're taking notes on. But if you can start developing this listening mindset where you're curious, you're, you're wanting to understand where they're coming from, why they're telling you the things that they tell you, not only will it improve your relationships, it'll change your practice and you'll actually enjoy what you're doing more because you can do better, more meaningful work. I think it's the single most important skill that an advisor can have for their client's success and their own success. Incredible. Yeah. Be, if you can be a better listener, you're going to be a better advisor. You're going to be a better person, right? And listen, I always say to just build on that because Brendan, I, I agree hundred percent with you to build on that. Listen to hear, not to fix. I know that's yeah. a big thing, right? Listen to yeah. hear. Don't be listening to try to fix someone's problem. Just listen just to hear them. Some people just want to be heard. Uh, yeah. And I love that. Brendan, yeah. And I definitely need to have you back on here. This has been an awesome, awesome conversation. I really appreciate everything you're doing for just the entire industry. And I can't wait to continue to follow everything that you're going to be doing. But for those that, for some reason, I don't know why, aren't following you already, how's the best <laughs> way for them to follow you? How's the best way for them to stay in touch with you and maybe even get in touch with you maybe to get some of your help and guidance? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for everything that you do too. I've enjoyed following your work as well. So I want to make sure and give you the props that you deserve as well. Um, yeah, the best way to do that is probably to either, you can go to the website, wiredplanning.com, see what we're all about, what the mission, the vision is. The podcast is called The Human Side of Money. So it's for advisors around, hey, how do we get better at all of these things that we don't get taught in trainings, courses, designations, certifications. And then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So you can find me on there, reach out to me on there. My, I, I still say to this day, my favorite thing is hearing from advisors and the way that, and the things that they want to know more about or the ways in which this has benefited them and their practice. So yeah, check out the website, check out the podcast. If you're on LinkedIn, find me on there. Twitter, find me on there. Let's connect and, and talk. It's one of my favorite things I get to do. Awesome. Brendan Frazier. You're the man. And uh, don't ever stop about that baseball dream. Maybe there'll be a, a senior league that you can you can get into. So don't don't stop dreaming on that side of it, all right? Keep focusing no, on it. It's crushed, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much for your time, man. Stay well and be well. And I uh, hope you and the family have a great rest of the year. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 